0: If you will, uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. We are at the end of uh, the series, The Making of a Disciple. And I hope that uh, what you take away from this series is not just some kind of a, a model saying, I've got to go and be that, and you know, I'm going to muster up all my strength to do that. Every week we've tried to address that and also address the other side of it, where you might say, boy, there's so many things in, in what a disciple is, according to the Scripture, and I, I could never be that. And the discouragement of just completely giving up. The Motivation is God's grace. It's the finished work of Jesus on the cross that brings us to the point of wanting more and more of Him. And it's Christ in us. If we accomplish anything, if we become any any amount like a disciple, it is because of Christ in us. And so we utterly depend upon Him at every point. But I do hope you're encouraged to see there's, there's need and there's room for growth for all of us. Today we're going to uh, read beginning with verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Father, as we bow before you today, we have sung of that great resurrection, and we have also sung of the perspective that it gives us on this life and trials that we may go through. And so, Lord, we pray that again you would speak to our hearts. There are some here who need peace about this subject, and they ought to have it because they're trusting in you. They're struggling in that area. And there are others that need to be stirred up because they aren't really trusting in you, and they know they need to. And so, Lord, Will you do your work among us? Will you? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember in uh, the first Gulf War a character named Baghdad Bob? His real name was Mohammed al-Sahaf. Now, this was Iraq's minister of information. And the reason I say it that way is, if you remember him, you might remember what his role was. And that was uh, virtually every night, he would go on their TV, and we would see bits and pieces of it as well. And he would explain how Iraq was defeating the enemy and winning the war. He had statements like this that were quoted. uh, We butchered the force present at the airport. Now this was while um, they were occupying the airport at that time. And uh, after uh, the Allies had taken over Saddam's Republican palace, he said this. There is no presence of the American columns in the city of of Baghdad at all. We besieged them and we killed most of them. And he would stand there on TV and tell these lies that if it weren't such a serious thing, it would have been comical. I remember seeing him standing there and at, at one point uh, as he was talking about how uh, how many planes they had shot down one came roaring behind him and he <laughs> went down and So, you know, there he was trying to take that which was obviously the truth and standing there and lying about it. There is, spiritually, a Baghdad Bob. And he is lying to believers about death. Baghdad Bob is Satan in that sense. He is trying by things he indicates to this world to get believers to fear or dread or believe wrongly about their own death. And whenever we do, death begins to get the victory, and that ought not to be the case for the believer. Death is perpetually the thing that people put that they fear most. You know, whenever they have these lists and surveys, uh, there'll be things up high like speaking in public and, you know, being embarrassed and and various things like that, and uh, virtually all the time at the top, it's the greatest fear is death. For the believer, for the disciple, that ought not to be the case. And yet I see far too many people who really do know the Lord that are just paralyzed by the thoughts of their own death. So how do we deal with it? How do we get to the point that we have a a right perspective on it? What we're going to do today is we're going to start with Truths that are the the farthest away, and then we're going to come closer in terms of application in our life. So let's first of all get a glimpse that God gives us of future glory. Now, I just read to you from 1 Corinthians 15, and let's take a look at what the, the resurrection means. It means that death won't win in verse 55 and 56. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Now, in our heads, we may say, well, you know, we know death doesn't win. Well, how does it win? Or how is it winning at times in people's lives? Let me give you several examples. Death begins to win when we are obsessed by avoiding it. Um, In our day, and I think especially as we baby boomers uh, get older and older, there seems to be just an obsession with stopping the aging process, with avoiding death. Now, I think exercise is a good thing. I think eating right is a good thing. We're to be stewards of the bodies that God has given to us. But the bottom line is we can't stop it. We cannot uh, put it off completely. And for too many, even believers, they are so obsessed with it that it looks like they believe that death is the worst thing that can happen to them. And some of you may say, well, what could be worse than death? Well... From a scriptural perspective, death is never the worst that can happen for a believer. There's another way death uh, begins to win. That's when we're afraid of it. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not afraid of death, but I will tell you, I'm not looking forward to the moment of death or the process around it. I mean, that, that would be foolish, I think, to look forward to that. And yet, I see way too many that have such a fear. If death has a sting, and it's victorious, then we should fear it. But according to the scripture, it does not. There's a man driving out in the country with his... uh, Little son, it's in the springtime. They got all the windows down. And as can happen, a bumblebee flew in the car. Now the little boy was just panicking because he was allergic to bee stings. And so the father quickly reached up, took a swipe at it, and grabbed the bumblebee in his hand. And then he let it go. And the bee was buzzing around the little boy again, who again panicked until the father said, You're okay. And he held out his hand, and the little boy saw that the stinger was in his father's hand. The bee was harmless. Jesus took the sting out of death for us. He holds out his hands. And he shows us that the sting is no longer there. There's a third way death wins, and that's when we personalize it as a worthy enemy. Now, the Bible does talk about it as an enemy, but after the resurrection, death is a defeated enemy. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls it sleep. Look in verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery... We shall not all sleep. And why does he do that? Well, you know, when people who don't know Christ are out there and they talk about death being sleep, it's a euphemism. They're using it because they they don't want to deal with death. And so let's call it something that that we don't have to be afraid of. Let's, Let's call it sleep. But that's not the way Paul uses it. Think, think about uh, the parallels there. Like physical sleep, the, the body in a sense is sleep even though the soul is conscious. Now I'm not, you know, listen and hear, hear this clearly. We're not talking about any kind of soul sleep. The soul is always conscious even though the body is there. Like physical sleep, one day the body will be awakened at the resurrection. So the world calls it sleep because they don't want to face up to it. Christians call it sleep because it's not something worthy of a fearsome name. A dreadful name. There's something else about that, and that is, to my knowledge, there is no place in Scripture that it says Jesus fell asleep when it's talking about his death. Now, there's a reason for that. Because Jesus died so that we can sleep. In other words, he he went through all of the pains and the horrors of death so that when it came to our death, It need not be something horrible. Now let's uh, look at, again, how Paul looks at it. He talks about a future glory. Um, Death gives us what we cannot have until the time that we die. Uh, I read you those verses. They can be kind of confusing when you just hear them. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And then down in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, here's here's the thing. Here's what it's talking about. It's saying as long as we're in this body, we cannot in a full sense inherit the kingdom of God. It's only after, after we pass from this life, that we will experience it in its fullness. We live in a fallen world. And so it is always marred by that. This is talking about when we have our glorified body. Now, what do we know about our glorified body? Well, we don't know a whole lot, but we do see Jesus' glorified body. That's where we find out maybe the most about that. He had a body, but it wasn't bound by the same laws as the earth, as we think of it. At one point, he's uh, outside of a room with a locked door, and then at the next point, we see him inside of this room where the door remained locked. That's not usual. He didn't do that before the resurrection, before he was glorified. But at the same time, there's some similarities we see the disciples thought he was a ghost. And so he said, well, give me a piece of fish. And so he ate the fish. And it wasn't like he was Casper the ghost, where you see the fish, you know, falling down to the ground or something like that. It was a real body. And so there are similarities and there are some differences. We see also with Jesus that he still had his wounds. You might say, wait a minute, I, I thought we were all healed up and uh, we wouldn't have scars when, uh, you know, when we have our glorified body. That We'd be perfect. Well, it's my contention that it was in his wounds that he was perfect. That's what bought heaven for us. So what does it mean? Well, Revelation 21.5, it says, he was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. So let's put that together with the whole idea of the glorified body. Because that's different than the idea that we sometimes have that he's just going to heal up our body. A lot of times we think, well, you know, we, we look at our bodies and we say, well, you know, Someday in glory, I won't have this flaw or that flaw and all of that. And we think that will be, you know, somehow our perfection. But here he says he's making all things new. I think it's going to be way better than just our bodies being healed up. Although that'd be wonderful. That may be a part of it. But, you know, for instance, on earth now, we've got some people with Ugly bodies and beautiful souls. And some people with rather ugly souls, but beautiful bodies. Those things will conform. They'll be in harmony when we are glorified. I don't know exactly what that means. But when he's saying, I'll make all things new, just imagine... And it's, it's going to be far beyond anything we can imagine. But I, I know for me, you know, six days a week, six times a week, I exercise. But I'll tell you what, it's getting way harder. And I get tired quicker. And I'm almost always sore somewhere. And then we read in the Scripture that... We will run and not grow weary. We'll walk and not be faint. That sounds good to me. I don't know about you, but that sounds good to me. Right now we have five senses. Now My eyes have been deteriorating for some time. Connie tells me my hearing is going the way of my parents' hearing. No telling what other uh, senses are going downhill. But we, you know, you might be tempted to think, well, I'll be able to see without contacts or glasses, and I'll be able to hear without hearing aids or, or whatever. You know, I think we think way too small. Somebody said, you know, instead of five senses, when, when we're glorified, we might have a hundred senses or a thousand senses. But whatever it is, it's going to be way better than our limitations here in this life. We will be new. George Herbert, an English poet in the early 1600s, said, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Now you might say, well, okay, that's fun to think about, but look, I... You know what? Yeah, I might fear death somewhere down the line, but I've got real issues now that I'm dealing with. I got marriage issues or relationship or school or work or financial. I mean, I'm going through a real trial here. And I you know, what's that got to do with what my life this week? Well, the the scripture indicates that. If we have a a right view of our death, it will give us a right perspective on our life now. I told you we'd start farther away, and that's at at our death. And let's let's move closer to what's going on now. In Philippians 1, (coughs) Paul said this. And uh, Pastor Kelly preached through this, so I'm not going to spend much time. But this needs to be read in this context. In Philippians 1, verse 20, it says, As is my eager expectation and hope, that I'll I'll not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here is Paul undergoing a trial in prison. For to me, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, if I... Keep on living, then I'll, I'll do something fruitful. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So here he is struggling between the two worlds, but he had no fear of that next. He said, "You know what? That's actually way better." But I know there's a need here, but, but I want to go there and be with Christ. Why do you think the, the Bible in 1 Corinthians and Philippians and 1 Thessalonians and Revelation and all over the place talks about death and resurrection? It was to prepare us for what we are going through. Those that received the book of Revelation were about to go through real persecution. It was for their comfort. It wasn't so they could sit around and, and figure out what day Jesus was coming back. It was to give them hope and courage for the real things that they were facing in their life. And removal of the fear of death changes one's view of life. Verse 21, to live as Christ. For Paul, who went through more difficulty than most of us will ever go through, it was like that. Think about Jesus. We see him in his last hours before his death with a calm resolve. And you might say, well, of course he had a calm resolve. He knew that after he died, he'd be raised from the dead. you are in christ so do you whatever you endure in this life it is temporary and heaven is eternal i had somebody say to me recently and it was uh, in the context of something uh, a test that they were going through and, and he said to me he said you know i can endure anything for 45 minutes and I think Paul was saying, you know, this life's just our 45 minutes. And whatever we're going through now, there's just no comparison to the glory of eternity. That's what gave him the perspective. He, he put it this way. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He said, I am, I'm sick, but the great disease has been healed. Sin. I, I have a huge debt I can't repay, but the real debt has already been paid. You need to know a positive anticipation of the future puts the present into perspective. Paul says, I'm I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. And I think sometimes we are torn between the two. You know, in our, in our heads we want to say, well, I know in my head that eternity will be great. But, you know, I, I, I love my children and I love my grandchildren. And I love my wife and... My life is pretty good, so I don't want to go. But you know, in my head, somewhere I know it will, it will be good. And so we're torn. I had a seminary classmate who was also a long-term friend. His name was Oliver. And he recently died from cancer. He had struggled with it a number of years, continued to pastor his church up until just a few months before he went to be with the Lord. But because of the nature of the disease, he had an opportunity to talk with each of his five children and spend some time with them. And in essence, say goodbye to them. One of his sons spoke at his funeral and he quoted his dad. He said, uh, My dad said this to me Son, you're going to miss me far more than I'm going to miss you. Do you get it? Now, Oliver loved those kids, they're grown. He really loved those kids but he understood the reality that when he went to be with the Lord, it wouldn't be like he'd feel like something's missing. His family would, but he wouldn't. And he's right. So, so how should this affect my issues? You know, my difficulties I'm going through and the trials I'm going through and all of that. Well, listen, the, the, the people who received this teaching the people who received the book of Revelation, you know what they did? They walked into lion's dens singing hymns. Some of them walked to the stake and were burned singing hymns to their God. How does that work? They understood better. They were gripped by the truth of the resurrection and it made a difference in their world. They refused to be gripped by the trials they were going through. But instead, by Christ himself. And you know it grieves me to see how many people cling to this life as if it is all that there is. It's this whole bucket list mentality. Now look, I like that movie. But the, if you don't know the premise of it, the idea was that uh, you know, they came up with a list of things they wanted to do before they kick the bucket, before they die. And then there's a, a movie about that. You know what the problem with that is? It can be. The implication could be, this life is all there is. And if I don't get it done now, I'm just not going to get to experience that. And it underestimates the glory of the next life. I know you may say, some of you, well, Dale, that's easy for you to say. You're not facing terminal illness. Oh, really? I'm going to be the only one that is not terminal? Is that right? I know what you mean if you were thinking that, though, is, you know, I don't know of anything right at the moment. And so you're saying, well, that's easy to say when you're in that situation. Let me give you three reasons why I am so convinced of this. The first is, I am confident that the word of God is true. And it is so clear that that which we are headed for is so much better than this. And I'm convinced of that. But secondly, through the years, I have had the privilege of being around any number of real disciples, those who really knew the Lord, That faced the end of their life with grace, without bitterness, and without fear, and with faith, right up until the end. And that has encouraged me to no end. It has shown me again and again that we need not fear as difficult as it may be, the end of this life, that we can have that eternal perspective that can make a difference at the end of our life. There's a third reason. On Easter of 2005, I stood in front of the congregation I was serving at that time and I was preaching about the power of the resurrection, and I said something that I said today. I am not afraid to die. I said the same thing, that I'm not looking forward to the moment of death or the process, but I'm not afraid to die. And three days later, while I was jogging, I had a heart attack. While they were working on me, I had made it back to my car before I called. And they were working on me in my car. My wife Connie was there and she had her hand on my head comforting me. And I remember exactly my thoughts as the pain increased and I was about to lose consciousness. And see, I didn't know whether I was passing out or whether I was at the very end of my life. For all I, I'd never had a heart attack, for all I knew, that was going to be it. I remember what I was thinking, just like it was this morning. And this is it: This is going to be hard on my children. See, my daughter Rachel is getting married in a couple months, and I thought, that's going to be a bummer. Without me walking her down the aisle, they're going to be upset. But I can tell you that there was not one ounce, not one second of fear. A few weeks later, I stood in front of that same congregation. I said, do you remember my Easter sermon? And yeah, they remembered it because I had talked about dying and they all remembered it. I said, you know what happened. And God gave me a wonderful gift in that heart attack because he showed me that in those moments, not because I was good or had faith, but because of the power of the resurrection, in those moments, we don't have to fear because of what Christ has done. For the disciple, we need not fear, but with Paul should say, for me to live is Christ but to die is gain. Let's bow together.